Little honey bees flying around, little green peas from the ground, buttermilk biscuits nice and brown. Bring it to Tennessee farm table, butter beans, peas, beets and chard, chickens running in the yard, catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to Tennessee farm table, cast on skillets, good and hot, watch it steam and crack and pop, cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop in black gang candy stripes. Look at them loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. Today we're setting the table with a discussion about land, agricultural land, and the problem of the fast disappearance of this land across our country. Our guest is Brooks Lamb, author of Love for the Land, Lessons from Farmers Who Persist in Place, published through Yale University Press. This book is deeply related to Tennessee, Southern, and American agriculture. At its core, Love for the Land shares the power and potential of people-place relationships. To do so, the book explores why some small and mid-sized farmers continue to care for their land, even in the face of tremendous adversity. In terms of adversity, he pays particular attention to the farmland loss from sprawl and haphazard development and agricultural consolidation, and for farmers of color, injustices in the past and present. Despite these challenges, some small and mid-sized farmers persevere. If you're a frequent listener to this show, you're probably wondering who I am. My name is Mark Rochelson. I'm Amy's husband. I'm filling in for Amy today, as she had a medical procedure and cannot speak well for a couple weeks. She'll be back soon. So let's hear from Brooks right now, and hear from him about his experiences in farming, and how he became immersed in this topic. Brooks, I'm just so glad to visit with you here today. And I love that you have such a deep love for the land and farming and farmers. Could you let us know a little bit about your background and how you came to develop such a deep love for the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I grew up on a small family farm in Marshall County, Tennessee, in the very small rural, unincorporated community of Holtz Corner. And my family has actually had a a very long connection to that land. We first started farming that place in 1892. Now, that family ownership hasn't been exactly linear. My parents purchased the farm after my great uncle 
passed, he left that land to his children, but he wanted my my parents to have it because they'd already been involved in taking care of the land. So all that to say, we know both the joys of multi-generational family commitment and connection to place, but also that very real burden of still trying to pay down a farm debt. So we can kind of see the the farm ownership perspective from from both angles there. But I grew up on that farm, was very involved uh, in working on the farm my entire life. You know, we had beef cattle. We still have beef cattle. We used to raise tobacco as well as a lot of small farmers in Tennessee and Kentucky and North Carolina and Virginia did. It was a great way for a long time to make a decent income from the farm to help make that farm payment and other things until, you know, some of the production controls were lifted, made tobacco a uh, a get big or get out crop as well. Um, so we raised that until I was a junior in high school. At various points, we raised pumpkins. We raised a big garden and sold in the farmer's market in town, um, grew our own hay, all sorts of, of different things. And throughout my childhood and high school, I really loved the farm, but I don't think I realized how much I loved it and how much it had shaped me until I left. Um, so I left when I graduated high school to go to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. It's a small liberal arts school here. And when I got to Rhodes, I loved my classes and my new friends and my professors. And I loved Memphis and I still love Memphis. My wife and I live here now, but I was terribly, terribly homesick. And it wasn't necessarily for, for friends or family from home, but it was for the land and, and the farm. And so I moped around for the first few weeks of college um, and was really just kind of sad and down. And then I started to nurture that homesickness and, and through service. Um, so I got involved with community gardens here in Memphis. I got very involved with a local park here and started volunteering regularly and trying to feed that part of myself that felt like something was missing because I was separate from the land for the first time in my life. And that experience was really, really formative to me. And it's where I first started to hear that vocational calling of wanting to serve people and places in the land itself, especially in rural communities. So, so when I finished at Rhodes, I started working with a statewide conservation organization called the Land Trust for Tennessee. I worked with the Land Trust for Tennessee for a couple of years, and then I, I had an opportunity through the Truman Scholarship to go to graduate school. So I, I left the land trust in the fall of 2019 and went to Yale School of the Environment, where I had a chance to be in this great educational setting, but also to return back home. And I, I based my research and work in understanding commitments to place among small farmers in Tennessee. And so that was a great opportunity to, to be there and meet wonderful people and dive into these issues that I care about. And this feels all like one really long journey from cultivating my my own connections with place, learning to love the land from my parents and brothers and grandparents and aunts and uncles to watching other people who've developed that love for place to studying these issues and writing about them. Uh, and now working with a, an organization called American Farmland Trust, where I get to try to take those personal experiences, my education and the things that I write about and really try to put a lot of those things into action. So that was a meandering long question or answer to your question, but hopefully it sheds a little light about why I care about these things so much. I feel really fortunate that there is this kind of uh, continuity uh, among the things that I, I care about. And it it is both really beneficial. It also gets hard at times when your passion in your personal life also bleeds over so much into your professional work. So it sometimes can feel like you're 
you're always working, <laughs> but at the same time, it can also feel like you're always working for something that is deeply meaningful and rewarding and fulfilling for me. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I feel really, really lucky. The focus of your work in ecological stewardship and writing about agrarian and environmental issues is really what you seem to write about. And you've recently written Love for the Land, Lessons from Farmers Who Persist in Place. Can you let us know the overall message? Yeah, absolutely. So at its most core level, Love for the Land focuses on the power as well as the potential of people-place relationships. And so to dive into that idea, I focus on trying to understand why some small and mid-sized farmers, and in my book, because I'm I'm talking with Tennessee communities about these issues, I kind of position that as roughly 50 to 500 acres in size. That could be a little less, it could be slightly more, but kind of farms that are, are substantial enough to really be um, doing some production on their farms, but also small enough that they're not industrial by any means. So looking at why those small and mid-sized farmers continue to care for their land, even in the face of tremendous adversity. Um, and I could talk a little bit more about what types of adversity I, I specifically. What I found in conversation after conversation after conversation with small farmers and local leaders and farm service providers in a couple of Tennessee communities is that it is their connections to place, their affection for the land or their love for the land and their loyalty to it that really motivate their perseverance and their resilience. And so um, I argue that one, we need to be doing more to support those small and mid-sized farmers because they provide an invaluable service to all of us, whether we're in rural communities or, or big cities, that we need to be doing more to support right-sized farming, farming that is attentive to the land, um, that prioritizes stewardship, that really leads with love and thinks about things like profit and sustainability. We have to do those things, but also really leads with that idea of love for place. Um, so I argue we need to be doing more to support them but also that all of us can learn from these farmers, whether we live on farms ourselves, which is not that many of us across the United States. I think there's something like 2 million farms left in the United States, down several million from what it was in the early to mid 20th century because of ag consolidation and other issues. So whether we live on farms or whether we live in small towns or suburbs or big cities, I argue that we have a lot to learn from those farmers who have committed to place and that we can all commit to place uh, and learn to love it in our own context, whether that is a farm or whether it's a urban park or a backyard garden or maybe a street tree that we walk past every day on the way to work. Um, I argue that if we really connect with those places, learn to love them and care for them, that we can provide better care for those places individually, but also collectively, if we're all doing that, we're going to provide better care for our community, our county, our state, our country, and hopefully the entire planet itself. So that's kind of the main thrust of the book there. You're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and our guest is Brooks Lamb, author of Love for the Land, Lessons from Farmers Who Persist in Place. This book addresses the very real problem of farmland loss across our country and land access for individuals who would like to purchase farmland and how small and mid-sized farmers most at risk 
can persist in this area. If you're a frequent listener to the show, you're probably wondering who I am. My name is Mark Rochelson. I'm Amy's husband. I'm filling in for Amy today. Uh, she had a small medical procedure that uh, is going to affect her voice for a couple of weeks. But she'll be back very soon. We put a link to this book in our podcast notes and pictures of Brooks on our website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. In the second part of this visit, we delve deeper into this book and some of the difficulties that small and medium-sized farmers face and hopeful ways that we can support these farmers. And this new book you've written, Love for the Land, Lessons for Farmers Who Persist in Place. And in this book, you cite Wendell Berry and concepts that he promotes approaching farming through virtues of imagination, affection, and fidelity. Can we look at those three virtues and and how they manifest in terms of care of place? Yeah, absolutely. And so I should mention first that Wendell Berry has really been a huge influence for me. His writing, uh, and not only his writing, but the way that he has lived and still lives his life um, has been really, really impactful and formative for me. And so I always like to call that out if folks are familiar with his work. Um, it'll be another chance to maybe dive into it. If you're not familiar with his work, um, you can dive into some of his novels or his poems or his essays. Um, and his work has just been really, really inspirational for me, particularly his writings around what you mentioned, Amy, these ideas of imagination, affection, and fidelity. And so his ideas on imagination are, are really interesting. A lot of the times people hear the word imagination and we think of things like um, magical forests with talking trees and flying unicorns and talking animals and, and all of these sorts of fantastical visions. But what Barry means when he writes about imagination is this deep and ever evolving connection with an attunement to a specific place. It's knowing a place so well that you feel bound to it and that you could be a thousand miles away, you could shut your eyes and you could still put yourself in that place and all of the richness of detail that that, uh, that that means. So you could imagine what it feels like, what it smells like, what the dirt might feel like. You really knowing this place and being able to put yourself there. So he writes about the importance of that sort of imagination of knowing a place that well. And then he writes that having that sort of imagination leads to this idea of affection for place, um, that it's this deep and enduring love, not some sort of nostalgic or wistful love, but one that is really forceful. Um, it's not reactive, but it's proactive. It guides so much of our relationships with the place. Um, and then loving a place in that way leads to this ultimate virtue uh, or character disposition that guides how we how we think and act of fidelity. And that kind of uh, is like a devotion to place, a loyalty to it, a duty to care for it uh, and to care for it in the long term, not just briefly or when it's convenient, but when it's really hard and for a long time and having that connection. And I think there are some human examples for, for understanding these virtues as well. You think about imagination and affection, you might think of friends and friendship, you know, people uh, who we know really well and connect with, they might become our friends and because we've connected with them. We've gotten to know them. We're attuned to their moods and their well-being. We start to develop a sense of love for that friend because we have that love for that friend. We're willing to do a lot of things to care for them and provide for them and, and help them out. Another example is, is marriage. 
Um, you get to know someone, a partner, you know them well, you develop that sense of love over time. And then in the marriage, you have this fidelity to one another, this devotion to one another. And it gets really hard at times, right? You might face difficulties together. Um, you might have challenges or struggles, but there is a welcome obligation of care and a welcome commitment to one another that is really fulfilling for both people involved. And I think that same idea can be applied to the land. When you have that fidelity to place, it's good for the land because you want to do what's best for it, but it can also be really fulfilling and rewarding for you as a person who is caring for it. So I think it takes time and a lot of hard work and learning from others to develop those sorts of virtues. And I write about that a good bit in the book, how people have really started to practice these things over time. Maybe they learn them from neighbors or other family members. Um, but I really do think that they're pivotal to caring for the land and providing good stewardship. We need skills, you know, how to, how to do certain conservation practices or how to best rotate livestock through a, a you know, a pasture, but we really need these virtues too to really guide how we're doing a lot of the everyday practical tasks that we take on in, in caring for a farm. That's right. And also say it's the middle of August, you're worn out and it's six 30 at night and you've got a bushel of tomatoes that need canning. And that land has just worked hard. And we've worked hard to tend that land to make those bushels of tomatoes. And you just got to reach deep down into our, our gut and just can them. Can them while the time is right. Exactly. No, for sure. And and people I, I spoke with in the book mentioned those exact sorts of scenarios, Amy. They talked really? about <laughs> it being freezing cold in the middle of the winter and they're having to put hay out for cattle and all they want to do is go inside and warm up, but they're trying to persist and do what's right for their farm because of that commitment to place. It's something I understand really, really well too. Um, you know, you're in a hay field and it's a hundred degrees and you're trying to get the hay crop up, especially if it's square bales, which we still bale a few hundred bales of every summer before it rains. And so you're out there, you're working your tail off, you're trying to do that, or you're cutting tobacco and you got to get to the end of a long row and it's just brutally hot, but you find that way to dig deep within yourself um, in order to do that work. So I think you're, you're spot on in describing some of that. Yeah. Well, you know that with that tobacco and hay work. Can we speak about some of these forms of adversity that farmers face and how you speak about that in your book? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, small and mid-sized farmers face a lot of challenges. Um, some of those are economic. Some of it is with the labor itself. A lot of these farmers, actually most farmers in the U.S. also rely on off-farm income. So people are working their full-time jobs and then trying to farm before work, after work, on the weekends. That's what my family always did. My dad worked in a car factory and my mom worked in an elementary school cafeteria. So we would farm when we had the extra time. Um, but the main challenges that I write about in the book are uh, related to a few different things. So the first is farmland loss from sprawl and haphazard development and con uh, conversion of that land to non-agricultural uses. And so this is an issue that is really prevalent across the country. So uh, American Farmland Trust has recently released some research uh, that projects forward over the next couple of decades about how much farmland loss we stand to lose if our current development trends continue. And so our data suggests that if we develop as we have for the last 15 or 20 years, 
the United States will convert over 18 million acres of agricultural land by 2040. It's an alarming amount of acreage. Um, what is especially alarming for us, uh, since we live in Tennessee, Amy, and, and actually this is this is really prevalent throughout the entire Southeast, the South is slated to lose uh, the highest uh, amount of agricultural acreage of any region in the country. And so Tennessee uh, is ranked either second or third in the nation for projected farmland loss right behind our neighbor to the east, North Carolina. Tennessee by 2040 is estimated to convert or compromise over 1 million acres of agricultural land just in Tennessee alone. That's about 8% of the total farmland that we have in the state. So this is something that is really acutely affecting our home here. Um, and it's something that was really affecting the two communities where I based most of my research and my interviews, um, trying to use those two communities, which were also experiencing the other adversities that I'm going to talk about as microcosms of sorts that really relate to a lot of the, the dynamics that are happening in other communities throughout the country. Maybe they're just playing out a little more extremely uh, in some of these, these Tennessee communities. Um, so I'll talk about farmland loss from development. I also write a lot about agricultural consolidation, some of these issues that we were we were chatting about earlier. Um, and you know, no matter what statistic you look at, um, agricultural consolidation is is really ramping up and has been ramping up for for decades across the country, whether you look at um, midpoint acreages or the economic viability of the small and mid-sized farms um, across the board. You just see trends towards bigger and bigger and more industrial agricultural operations. And so there are um, the community implications of that that we were discussing about the hollowing out of rural places. There are environmental impacts associated with that. There are agricultural and local food production impacts that are associated with that. Other economic impacts, all sorts of things that are really playing out in negative ways because of rampant agricultural consolidation. So I look at that issue, how that's affecting small and mid-sized farmers. And then um, I also look for farmers of color at issues of systemic injustice in the past but also still very much in the present. So black farmers in particular have experienced a lot of racism and discrimination over the course of U.S. history. Um, and even, you know, especially the last few decades, they've really um, faced a lot of uh, difficulties. And that could be anything from loan denials or loan delays. Uh, you're not getting the money that you're applying for in the amount of time that another farmer might get it. It could be underrepresentation on local agricultural committees. It could be microaggressions. Um, I spoke with several farmers who, uh, black farmers in, in Tennessee, who would show up at agricultural meetings and people would say, what are you doing here? You're not a farmer. Just because of the color of their skin, they made that assumption that they couldn't be involved in agriculture. Um, on to other systemic challenges like um, issues of heirs property, H-E-I-R, S, heirs property. So that's like this informal type of property ownership where land is passed down from generation to generation, where you can end up with dozens of co-owners of land. And because of inadequacies in the law, there can also often be forced sales of that land, even if 
the vast majority of the family wants to hang on to that farm. And so that is an issue that has caused a lot of land loss among Black people in rural communities throughout the South, especially. So all of those sorts of issues combined with issues of consolidation and farmland loss from development has really um, dealt a tough hand for a lot of small farmers uh, of any race across uh, across the South, across the country. So these are some real challenges that farmers are dealing with. And it is really amazing to me um, that some have been able to be resilient and persist. There are challenges too with, with new and beginning farmers, like we talked about earlier, trying to start their own journey of stewardship. So lots and lots of challenges, really amazing resilience. And these are stories that I felt like needed to be shared, which was the reason for for putting this book out. I'm so glad you have. I, my grandfather was a farmer from middle of Mississippi, and his dad was a farmer. His brother farmed. I'd follow my uncle behind his mule, at, even in the 70s, early 70s. And now they've passed, and the land is still there, but it's consolidated. Now we don't really know who it is at farms. It's all soybeans. It used to be the heartbeat of their family. Yeah, those, those situations, you know, we, we we need some commodity agriculture like that. And there are certain settings in which those larger scale farms might make sense. Um, but also, I feel like you do you do lose something when a lot of agriculture goes in that direction, when the future of land is either, hey, this place is going to be subsumed into another larger operation that continues to expand, or it's going to be erased in favor of a subdivision or a strip mall or whatever another quote unquote higher and better use is for that land. So I feel like there's a lot of danger in that. And we see a lot of harm that unfolds in rural communities too, whereas you used to have communities of small farms and you had vibrant rural places. And now with consolidation, you have fewer and fewer people because the, the bigger the machines, the bigger the farms, takes less people to work the, the land, even though it's more acreage. And it kind of hollows out a lot of our rural places, whether that is where your family was was based in Mississippi or, or Tennessee or, or anywhere across the South and across the country. So there are real implications of this as they play out on that community scale as well. There sure are. What was the term when a big giant conglomerate eats up all little farms? What is the term for that again? I usually will refer to it as kind of just agricultural consolidation um, or kind of thinking of, if you think of it from the land itself, like subsuming all of those smaller operations. Once, you know, the person who's farming it retires or passes away, um, you often see, uh, and this is, I have pictures of this in the book. Um, you see that farm auction sign or that for sale sign go up along the road um, and then, what often happens, depending upon how close to an urban area uh, these places are, is that developers swoop in and they outbid anyone else who would like to purchase that land, maybe root into it. Maybe a new and beginning or underserved farmer would really like to purchase that land. This is something my wife and I are going through right now. We would really like to get on a farm of our own here in the next couple of years um, in Middle Tennessee, since that's where my family is based. But it is incredibly hard because we don't have the pocketbooks that a lot of these developers have um, to be able to compete with them. So when that 80 acre farm goes up for sale, it's it's tough for us to, to compete. Um, and the same in some of these areas where uh, agricultural consolidation is, is so prevalent um, because there's a, another farmer in the community who may have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of acres. And for them, 
going in to buy another 80 acre farm and just adding that to the the farm debt, you know, it's not that big of a deal. They, they have the economic means to do that. And so, um, so yeah, I, I often refer to it as either just consolidation in general or just being subsumed into ever larger operations. The resilience of farmers that you write about in your book face these hardships you've just described, and yet they persist and truly care for their land and their way of life. And can you speak on a way forward through these things and how we can all help? One thing that I think is really interesting, um, and a friend of mine and I had this conversation, and I ended up kind of including some of this framework in the book. A lot of the times, um, these virtues of imagination and affection and fidelity can end up being liabilities for some of the farmers who are practicing them, at least economic liabilities, because they are trying so hard to love their land and care for it that it can lead them into some economic struggle. So I think that we need to be changing the systems that are in place, the policies that are in place to take these virtues, which are so important and need to be underlying the foundation of our entire agricultural and food system. I really think that these virtues need to be at the heart of that, but transform those virtues from liabilities that can be burdens and cause difficulties to assets that enrich and empower these farmers and these communities to care for place in really authentic ways. And I say enrich, and I mean that, I guess, economically, I'm not, I don't think a lot of these farmers are trying to get rich, but at least enrich enough where they cannot be um, having to practice such self-sacrificial stewardship all the time. Maybe they can make a decent living from farming, you know, uh, heaven forbid a farmer, actually a small farmer can make a decent economic income from, from their work. Um, but but really empower them to continue exercising these virtues. And, and I think that is really, really pivotal. So there are things that we can do to help make that happen. Um, for one, one thing that I'm very excited about, and I, I recently wrote an op-ed about this in an online magazine called Modern Farmer, but there is a, a bill before the uh, U.S. Congress um, called the Office of Small Farms Establishment Act. And this would create an office within the USDA dedicated solely to making sure that USDA and NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service, resources are going to small scale farmers of you know, 180 acres and below, making sure that these programs and conservation dollars and maybe some subsidies are going to these smaller farmers instead of almost exclusively going to these large-scale industrial, already very wealthy farmers and corporations. If you look at the breakdown of where a lot of our federal agricultural dollars go, it is going to these massive farms that are not doing great things for local economies or the environment or local food production. So this sort of office would make sure that those resources are at least being targeted to some of these places. So I think that is really important. I think on the state level, there are things that we can do to better incentivize and reward conservation of land. Um, so a lot of states have what are called purchase of agricultural conservation easement programs or PACE programs. Um, and this will you know, reward farmers financially who would like to place a permanent 
legal agreement on their land to make sure that it always remains a farm. Farmers in Tennessee, landowners in Tennessee can do that now, but they have to donate their development rights through a conservation easement, and they don't get much financial benefit from doing so, except for a federal tax deduction, which can be really helpful for some families. But a lot of families don't have the income to make that a a real benefit for them. So these sorts of PACE or purchase of easement programs are able to compensate farmers and their families for protecting their land. Those farmers and their families can then use that income or some of that income to reinvest in their farm operations. Maybe they really need a new tractor. Maybe they really need a new hay barn. Maybe they need to be able to leave some money to some of their heirs who don't want to farm and be able to leave the farm to maybe the child who does want to farm. That way it's being fairly distributed in an equitable process for all of their heirs. Whatever they choose to do, they're able to to use that income and compensation to, to do something good. That money often stays in the community. And we're guaranteed that that land will always be a farm providing food benefits, providing environmental benefits, these sorts of things. There are also things that can be done at the local level, um, better planning for agriculture, envisioning a future for farms in a given community. Um, We can do things to better support those heirs property owners that I mentioned earlier. Um, There are so many things that can be done. And I, I write about all these in the last chapter of the book, trying to talk about how we can leverage love for the land into strategies and policies that support and serve these rural communities, which by extension helps all of us because we all need to eat. We all need to breathe. We all need clean water and good, well-stewarded, small and mid-sized farms make those things more possible. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Our guest has been Brooks Lamb, author of Love for the Land, Lessons from Farmers Who Persist in Place. This book addresses the very real problem of farmland loss across our country and land access for individuals who would like to purchase farmland and how small and mid-sized farmers who are most at risk can persist in place and how we can help. You can purchase Brooks' book directly from him on his website, brookslamb.com, and you can find links to his website and links to other closely related topics on our website, tennesseefarmtable.com. If you're moved to help with this crucial problem of farmland loss and are thinking of year-end giving, Brooks works closely with an organization, American Farmland Trust, that is working actively to address farmland loss and conversion in the volunteer state. You can find a link to American Farmland Trust on our website, tennesseefarmtable.com. I want to also congratulate Brooks for this book, being a finalist in the book category for the Reed Award from the Southern Environmental Law Center. Winners will be announced early in February. Brooks Lamb, a man spreading a hopeful message in this world. Thank you, Brooks. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week, 
and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production. Ha <laughs> ha